When I was a junior in high school, I took a speech class. I went to Eden Prairie High School, and I took a speech class as a junior, thinking uh, I might be fairly good at that course and uh, have an easy chance at an A. And uh, so I went and I took this, uh, I took this speech class, and, and the final project for the semester was to uh, write an informative speech. It had to be uh, between four and five minutes long. And, uh, and then we had to give this speech in front of our classmates. And so that was kind of intimidating, you know, when you're a 17-year-old kid to have to, to give a speech in front of your classmates. And, well, I, I made it even more difficult on myself. I decided to pick a topic, you know, in a, in a public school setting. I decided to do a speech on irrational atheism. And, uh, you know, so that kind of raised some eyebrows amongst my uh, classmates. But I had a teacher who was very sympathetic to the topic. He wasn't a believer, but I think it was, he was curious. And so uh, we spent about three months throughout that semester preparing our, uh, our speeches and, you know, learning some of the skills of rhetoric. And, and, uh, and then the final day of the class came and we had to give our speech. And so I stood up and, and, uh, and I shared my speech. And honestly, I, I don't say this boastfully, but like, I, I just, I knocked it out of the park. I mean, it was, it was awesome. And, uh, and I was super excited because this was kind of like my first big public speaking uh, opportunity that I had really, you know, had. And then I excelled in it. And, and I was thinking, this is terrific. You know, this is fun. And after class, my teacher comes up to me. He says, hey, Jason, you know, you're, you're a pretty natural speaker. Um, have you ever thought about joining the speech team here at school? And I thought, well, no, I'd never crossed my mind. I was, I was an athlete. I played every sport in high school. You know, I'd never thought about joining the speech team. You know, that's what all the nerds and stuff did. But, but uh, you know, my, my speech teacher, he said, no, that was a great speech. In fact, I think you should use that speech, join the speech team, and, and you would be great in the informative speaking category. And so I thought, you know, okay, well, maybe I'll give it a shot. And so um, I, you know, a couple weeks later, the speech season began, and my teacher reminded me of that, and he invited me to come to the first meeting. And I, sure enough, I went after school to the first meeting, and the room was full of a bunch of nerds. And, and, uh, and then here was me coming in, and they said, well, you're going to fit right in with the rest of us. And, <laughs> and uh, But anyway, I ended up joining the speech team that year. And I gave my speech on irrational atheism. It was a five-minute speech. And, I mean, you know, talk about trying to debunk atheism in five minutes. But, you know, it was like boom, 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 just quick, quick, brief bullet points, basically. And uh, I actually did really well that season. I ended up finishing second in our sections tournament and ended up going to state. Uh, I finished eighth in state my junior year in the informational speech category. Uh, I found out later from my, my speech coach that uh, out of the three rounds that I spoke, I got the highest scores in two rounds, but I must have had an atheist judge in my third round because I got the lowest score that round, which, which really tanked my, uh, my potential that year. But I was, that was pretty good. I was really excited. You know, junior in high school did, did really well in something. Well, so my speech coach says, Jason, you got to come back and do this again next year. Well, you know, now I'm getting a big head, right? I'm thinking, you know, I'm the man. I went to state, you know, senior year. I'm going to go and cruise through this thing. So I think, you know, here's what I'm going to do. Senior year, forget the informative category. Anybody can prepare a speech, you know, and work on it for three months and memorize it. And then, you know, anybody can do that. I'm going to make this a little bit more of a challenge for myself. I'm going to go for the extemporaneous speech category. Now, the extemporaneous speech category goes like this. Uh, what you do is you show up at the speech tournament 
and the judges give you a topic, something related to current affairs, world events, politics, and then you have 30 minutes to prepare a five-minute speech on that topic. And so it's a lot more challenging, right? Like you don't know what you're going to be talking on until you get to the tournament. They give you the category, the topic. You you get 30 minutes to go sit in the library and prepare. Well, I show up to my first extemporaneous speech tournament thinking, hey, this is going to be awesome. You know, I'm the man. I went to state last year. Well, I show up, and they gave me the category, and I've never heard of this in my whole life before. I, I don't even remember what the topic was, but it was like some political issue that, I mean, I had vague familiarity with. Um, I go down to the library. I discover that all the other kids in the extemporaneous category, they're lugging around literally file cabinets, like luggage racks with file cabinets loaded with articles and research. And here's me. I got nothing. And I'm sitting in the library, you know, kind of thinking, okay, what am I going to do here? Well, needless to say, God humbled me real quick. That's that year in the extemporaneous speech category. I don't think I won one tournament. I don't know if I, you know, I, I, I just completely bombed. And, uh, and again, it was, a real, uh, it was a real important humbling lesson in my life. Well, I share all of that with you today because you may have noticed in your worship guide this morning, Pastor Barry's name is listed as our preacher for this morning. And the notes on the back are Pastor Barry's notes. And uh, yesterday, I'm having a great Thanksgiving weekend, you know, just enjoying time with my family, thinking, hey, this is terrific. I got a Sunday off. Pastor Barry's going to preach. He's been prepping for weeks, you know, for his uh, sermon. He had an awesome sermon planned for today. I'm telling you, it was going to be terrific. And Barry calls me yesterday and says, Jason, hey, uh, man, I got some bad news. My wife and I just tested positive for COVID. And uh, praise the Lord, they're, they're doing well. They've just got, you know, mild cold and flu symptoms. But, uh, but Barry said, Jason, I, I hate to do this to you. It goes against everything that God's wired me to do, but I, I just I can't preach tomorrow. So anyway, uh, I say all that because today feels like I'm back in my extemporaneous speaking days. <laughs> One of the tick tips you learn in extemporaneous speech is how to kill time. <laughs> By telling long, meaningless stories, right? Anyway, but anyway, I just encourage you to be praying for Pastor Barry and his wife. Uh, his, two, his girls at home are all doing fine. We're grateful for that. And uh, we're going to pray that they have a quick and speedy recovery. And uh, this morning, I'm going to do my best Brett Favre impersonation. I'm going to scramble, and we're either going to throw a touchdown or we're going to throw an interception one way or the other. So let's have a word of prayer and just ask the Lord's blessing as we turn to his word again, continuing our series in the book of First Peter. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You are so faithful, and uh, we just thank you, God. Thank you for uh, that great time of worship and those songs which conveyed just so many meaningful and powerful truths, Lord. And uh, we just praise you because uh, you are better than any of us deserve. And now we have the privilege of once again turning to these ancient words, ancient words that you inspired the Apostle Peter to share with us for our benefit, Lord. And uh, as we've seen so many times already in this series in recent weeks, this, this letter written 2,000 years ago is still so timely and powerful and relevant for our lives today. And I pray, God, that today as we turn again to this letter, as we're quickly coming to the end of this letter, that you would open our eyes to your truth, Holy Spirit, that you would inspire and, and, and illuminate these words for us, 
teach us what you want us to learn today and and uh, give us humble and receptive hearts. And Lord, I just pray that you would give me an extra special blessing and anointing this morning as I share on little time of prep this week. But uh, I pray, God, that what I share from your word would be meaningful and, and helpful to my friends and church family here this morning. We pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a little while ago, we're coming off of Thanksgiving. I, I hope you all had a terrific Thanksgiving. We had a great Thanksgiving Eve service here on Wednesday night. It was a, really just a special time. Uh, we had some great uh, testimonies that were shared by people from our church community. That's always such a great blessing. And then, uh, and then Thursday, of course, we got to celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, I hope you had a great time, uh, that you had a chance to gather with family, friends. Uh, my family and I, we went down to Eden Prairie and uh, spent the day at my mom's house with my, with my mom and my brother and his family. And uh, I always love Thanksgiving uh, for a lot of reasons. You know, you get that time to just reflect on God's goodness. You're, you're spending time with loved ones. And then, of course, there's, there's the big event, the Thanksgiving meal, right, that we all look forward to. And, uh, man, every year it's such a blessing going home because, you know, nobody puts on a Thanksgiving feast like mom. Am I right? And, uh, you know, my mom, she had, you know, prepared a great meal for us. And uh, my wife and my sister-in-law, they brought items to share. And it, it was just, it was awesome. We had a great time as a family. And, uh, you know, when it comes to the Thanksgiving meal, though, I was thinking about this as I was eating my dinner that, mor- that, uh, that afternoon, Thursday afternoon. You know, like, the, the, the turkey always takes center stage, right? I mean, the turkey always is like the big item on the Thanksgiving dinner table. But the reality is, like, I think if you were to hold a survey, probably most people would say, like, the turkey is, like, way down on their list of the things that they look forward to in the Thanksgiving meal. How many would agree with me on that one? Right? All right, I see a bunch of you out there, right? Uh, I mean, the turkey's great, don't get me wrong, but there are all kinds of other side items that I look forward to, right? The mashed potatoes and gravy, the stuffing, the, the sweet potatoes, all the casseroles, right? It's all the side items that I end up piling up on my plate and enjoying. And, uh, and again, when you think about those favorite items at the Thanksgiving dinner table, there's nothing like mom's home-cooked specialties, am I right? I, I know as a pastor, oftentimes I'll come here and we have potlucks here at church and I'll come across the potluck line and, and I'll see items on the potluck table that look like some of my favorite dishes and I'll take them and, you know, they're good, but they're just not the way mom makes them, right? There, there's nothing like mom's, you know, special recipe. And, and so on Thanksgiving, we had some of our family favorite recipes, right? We had my mom's uh, had cheesy hash brown potatoes. We, we had Kim's uh, famous sweet potatoes. We had uh, my grandma's uh, famous apple pie. And, and it, it's these family recipes that you look forward to that, that make those meals so special because they're these you know, secret recipes that have been passed down from generations sometimes that, that you learn to really love and look forward to. Well, today we're going to look at one of God's special recipes. God's secret recipe for a healthy church. You know, God has given us some wisdom here in Scripture and in 1 Peter in particular on how we can experience health in the church. We, we all want to be a part of a healthy church, right? I mean, I don't, I've never met a Christian who would say, like, you know, I, I, just, I don't want to go to a healthy church. No, we all want to be a part of a healthy church. 
that's running well, that's functioning well, that where life is happening, where growth is happening. And God's given us His recipe here in 1 Peter chapter 5 for a healthy church. I want to read our passage this morning, and then I want to highlight the two central ingredients found in God's recipe for a healthy church. Let's take a look at what Peter says here in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Of course, the day when I have one hour to prep, uh, I get a five-verse passage, right? I mean, Pastor Stephen gets 30 verses, I get five. But here in these five verses, we discover God's two-part recipe for a healthy church. It's so simple, but yet so powerful and so effective to experiencing joy and love and fulfillment and health in, in His church. What is God's recipe here? He says, number one, it begins with godly shepherds. Godly shepherds or, or faithful shepherds. Men of God who, who lead and shepherd God's church well. Peter speaks here of the role of elders in the church. In the first century, the, the term elder was synonymous with what we describe today as the role of pastor. Elders were pastors. They, they were overseers. These are all terms that the New Testament uses to refer to this role of leading and guiding God's church. Now, now here at Lakes Free, we have lay elders, men who are chosen from among our congregation to help lead the church. And then we have hired pastors who are also elders who help lead and guide our church. But, but we are essentially fulfilling the same biblical function of providing oversight and guidance, shepherding the church that God has put in our care. The, the, the word elder in the Greek is presbyteros. Presbyteros. The, you, you may find that word familiar. It's where our English word Presbyterian comes from, for example. The Presbyterian denomination comes out of that. That name comes from the word Presbyteros. It speaks to an elder, the leader of an assembly. Sometimes it can refer to, to age, to an older person, an, an elder in that connotation. Now, the elder of a church isn't always an older person. I, I think biblically we, we can make a strong argument that more often than not you want to strive for somebody who is older for the sake of wisdom and maturity and having had a broader experience of life and faith from which they can lead and oversee the church. But, but it's not exclusively about age. For example, if you remember the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in the book of First Timothy, the Apostle Paul, in counseling this young man, 
in his leadership, his eldership over the church that he was responsible for. Paul says to Timothy, let no one look down on you because you are young. 1 Timothy 4.12. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. So, so in other words, being an elder isn't simply about age. It's also about spiritual maturity, spiritual wisdom, and having that opportunity, that ability to set an example for the believers. And so God says that he's given his church shepherds to lead them, to guide them. Now, we all need shepherds, friends, whether we like to admit it or not. We as the church, as followers of Jesus, we need shepherds. And this week, I came across a a great illustration. I sent it to Pastor Barry. I don't know if he was planning on using it, but I decided I'm going to throw this in this morning. Great illustration that highlights the powerful need of of us as God's sheep needing shepherds to lead us and guide us. Let's take a look at this video clip. Why do we need shepherds? As if any greater explanation is needed, right? I mean, the reality is, God calls us sheep for a reason, right? Sheep are not the, the smartest animals, right? They, 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 they weren't blessed with the, the biggest brains in the barnyard, all right? And like that great hymn, you know, uh, that, uh, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, right? The, the last stanza in that song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And I think if we reflect on the reality of who we are as fallen sinful creatures, rebellious creatures, we are so prone to wander. God has given us his will, his way, the, the path that leads to life and life to the full. And yet so often we're like the sheep where we, we are rescued and God saves us. And then sure enough, before you know it, we jump into the ditch again. And this is one of the reasons why God has given us shepherds. He's given us elders to lead, to guide, to protect us as his people. Peter talks about the the elders providing oversight for the church. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. The word oversight there in the Greek is episcopal. Now that word might sound familiar too. The, The denomination, the episcopalians, right, comes from that same Greek word, episcopal. It means to provide oversight, to watch over, to direct, to care for an assembly. And this is what Peter says God has called these elders to do, the shepherds to do, to provide this oversight for God's people because we need it, because we're prone to wander. We're prone to find ourselves picked up out of the ditch and find ourselves jumping right back into it. Peter tells us a little bit about the elders' oversight here. He, he, he gives us three key insights into how these shepherds, these pastors, these overseers, these elders are to be exercising their leadership and oversight. Peter says the elders' oversight, number one, 
should be willing. Should be willing. He says here in verse 2, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So first and foremost, we discover that the elders' leadership should be freely chosen. A faithful elder is going to be a man who has a heart, a calling, a desire, a yearning to serve God's church. Not under compulsion, but but out of a spirit desiring to serve. Now, now, why would an elder be, you know, have to consider, like, am, am I being called to serve under compulsion, right? I mean, that sounds kind of weird, right? Serve, oversee the church, not under compulsion, but willingly. Well, we need to remember what was going on 2,000 years ago, right? I, I think there's two reasons why Peter uses this word. Don't exercise oversight under compulsion, but willingly. Remember what we talked about last week, the reality of trials, right? Trials and hardships and persecution. And 2,000 years ago, the churches in Asia Minor that Peter was writing to, in fact, the whole point of the letter of 1 Peter was written to encourage and instruct believers living in the midst of great trials and hardships. And if you remember over the last few weeks, we've seen how Peter reminds us who we are in this world. We are elect exiles. This world is not our home. We are just temporary residents passing through. And so Peter has gone on after reminding us of who we are in this world. He's, he's talked about who we are as God's people. He's reminded us of the promises that we have in God. He's reminded us of the calling that God's given us, how we live out our time in this world. He's given us encouragement in that. And then last week we saw he also reminded us that we can expect persecution in this world. We can expect trials in this world. We can expect hardships in this world. Now, if you are the leader of a church 2,000 years ago, right, or if you're a member of a church 2,000 years ago, and the church comes to you and says, would you be willing to lead? Would you be willing to serve as an overseer, an elder, right? In that environment, that was a very risky calling, to, to become the leader of a church in a region, in an area, in a community where the church was under intense persecution, you were putting a major target on your back to agree to serve as a leader, as an overseer, as an elder. And so Peter reminds these churches, he says, look it, if you're called to serve as an elder, don't do it under compulsion, but do it willingly. Because you need to understand what you're getting yourself into here. This is a high calling. This is the take up your cross kind of calling. This is the reality of you might be placing yourself in a position where you're going to become the primary target of the pagan community around you and their attacks against my people. And so Peter warns the church. He says, look, don't, don't do this under compulsion, but do it willingly. You have to have a heart for this. You have to have a heart to serve. Now, we as pastors and elders today face some of those same kinds of pressures. Maybe not as intense, but in in an increasingly post-Christian world where the church is coming under threat and and under attack on, on numerous fronts, we're beginning as Christian leaders to experience some of that same kind of pressure today. Certainly, our brothers in Christ around the world and other countries, communist countries, for example, face that pressure very intensely. The threat of persecution. 
I remember traveling to Cuba a couple times, and you talk to pastors in Cuba, it's a rarity to find a pastor in Cuba who hasn't spent time in prison. It's a rarity. The vast majority of them have. And so again, even in our day and age today, Peter's words here are very relevant for those who would serve as leaders. Don't do this under compulsion, but do it willingly because you have a heart to serve. Do it because the Holy Spirit has so prompted you to serve your church, your brothers and sisters, that that you can't think of doing anything but serving the church. And so that's the same kind of heart that we look for here today, even at Lakes Free and, and our elders. We look for faithful men who have a willing heart to serve the church. Some people ask, well, how, how do you discern that, Jason? How do you discover that? Well, we, we look on multiple fronts. We, we usually begin looking to identify our elders by finding who, who are those godly, faithful men who are serving throughout the church already. Uh, where, where are these men who are serving the church, whether in children's ministry or student ministry or as ABF leaders or small group leaders? Who, who are these men who aren't seeking positions of authority but are just simply serving out of their love for Jesus because they feel compelled to, to serve and, and assist the church? And so we first set out identifying those kinds of men. And then secondly, what we do here at Lakes Free is we invite those men then into what we have here called our elder study. And this is something Pastor Rick started years and years ago, where every year we invite faithful men of God to come and join our elders in in a study of what it means to lead the church. And this study includes everything from uh, biblical teaching and theology to practical leadership matters. And, and in the course of shepherding these men, often younger men in the church, in an understanding of what the role of elder and overseer is, we begin to learn more and more about who they are, their gifts, their personality, their calling. And then when it comes time for us as a church to select new elders, our elder board will often give recommendations to our church's nominating committee about men of God that we've seen faithfully serving already, who have been trained and equipped and prepared with our other elders to be servants of the church. And then the nominating committee brings those names forward to the wider congregation and our membership to to vote and, and approve them to serve as our elders. And all throughout that process, we bathe it with prayer because we want the Holy Spirit to be leading and guiding, both for the sake of our church and for the sake of those men and and often their families who will be called to serve as elders because it's a high calling. And, And it's a calling that is often a difficult calling. And we want faithful, godly men who are willing to serve because God's put that desire on their heart. And they want to be a blessing to our church community. So, so Peter begins here. He says, look, at the elders' oversight should be willing. Number two, he says the elders' oversight should be pure. It should be pure. He goes on. He says, don't oversee for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, a faithful elder is going to be someone who has the right motivation to serve. This isn't about a man who is seeking a position of authority so that he can gain something from that position, but rather somebody who is seeking to serve so that he can give 
for the sake of helping the body in Christ grow. Don't, don't serve for shameful gain, but serve eagerly. One of the, the greatest hindrances to the advancement of the gospel throughout history has been elders, overseers, pastors who serve for shameful gain. They don't, they're not serving out of pure motives. They're serving for what they can get out of it themselves. We've all heard stories even here in, in America of pastors who have been you know, dragged through the mud and their churches have been dragged through the mud because it's been discovered that they were serving for shameful gain. I, I think back even in, in the last year, I've seen stories in popular media about pastors who have you know, been maligned in the press for flying on their private jets, multi-million dollar jets that they fly from conference to conference, weekend to weekend. One, one, one televangelist I read yesterday, he said, they, they, he was questioned by the press, you know, well, why do you need to fly around in such a fancy, exclusive jet? I mean, these are jets that even some of the richest people in the world can't afford. And he said, well, I, I can't fly regular, you know, regular airlines. I, I'm too busy with gospel work. And, and if I wasted all that time in the airports, I'd be wasting time doing important gospel work. And so I need to fly in this fancy multi-million dollar jet. And, and it's stuff like that, friends, that the world looks at and just thinks, this is, this is a shepherd? This is what a servant of God looks like? Right? And it's that kind of hypocrisy that shames the reputation of Christ. And, and it brings disdain to God's church. We, we think of back in the 1980s, one of the most infamous examples of this was Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. You remember the Bakers, Right? And they, they were accused of, you know, they actually not accused, they were, uh, they were uh, sentenced in court to 24 counts of fraud for stealing millions and millions of dollars from their followers. He ended up spending many years in jail, right? Jerry Falwell, talking about this scandal, he says it was the greatest scab in cancer on the face of Christianity in 2,000 years of church history. Why? Because, again, the way the public ridicules when shepherds, when overseers serve for shameful gain. Not, not willingly, not eagerly, not out of a heart to serve. And this is nothing new, friends. This isn't just happening here in 20th and 21st century, but, but this goes back. All throughout history, there have been shepherds who have sought to serve for shameful gain. Even the Protestant Reformation in 1517. Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, one of the reasons Martin Luther protested against the Catholic Church was because they for years had been selling indulgences to pay for the building of St. Peter's Basilica, the largest church in the world, a church that cost over $5 billion in today's money to build. And they sold that to, they bought that by selling indulgences, which were means of gaining time out of purgatory. So people could purchase time out of purgatory, basically buying their salvation. And that's how the Catholic Church built St. Peter's Basilica out of shameful gain. And that ultimately led to the great reforms that brought about the Protestant Reformation, much needed reforms, right? And again, this all stems out of God's men who were called to shepherd the church in purity, instead shepherding for shameful gain. So Peter warns us, don't do that. 
Don't oversee for shameful gain, but oversee eagerly as a desire, out of a desire to serve God's people. The elders' oversight, thirdly, Peter says, should be exemplary. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Not domineering, but being examples. A faithful elder, friends, will have a desire to model Christ-likeness in their service. A faithful elder is going to want people to see Jesus through their example and the way they lead. Not domineering over those that God has placed them in charge of, but leading faithfully like Jesus led. You know, sadly, our world today has a lot of examples of the opposite kind of leadership, the domineering kind of leadership, the, the leader that seeks to impose their authority on others rather than lead them in love and service and humility. Back in the 16th century, there was an Italian philosopher and diplomat uh, named Niccolo Machiavelli. He, he wrote a famous book called The Prince. It, it was a handbook to give to young rulers. And, and in his book, The Prince, Machiavelli asked the question, is it better to be feared or to be loved as a ruler? Is it better to be feared or to be loved? And Machiavelli advocated that it was better to be feared. He said a ruler whose love can, can always be betrayed. But a ruler who is feared because they will bring down the heavy hand of the government on their people is much less likely to be betrayed by his people. Sadly, in our world today, there are many authoritarians and totalitarians and, and increasingly a growing totalitarian movement in our world that is leading people by fear and compulsion rather than out of the Christ-like model of love and service and humility. Peter says, don't domineer over those in your charge, but lead them out of love, out of service, out of humility. Be an example for them. An agape love kind of an example. An example like Jesus set for us. I, I'm so thankful when I think back on my life, on the godly leaders that God has put in my life to give me an example of what it is to serve in humility and love and selflessness. I, I've often told people, even here at Lakes Free, next to my father, the, the most significant man in my life in ministry teaching me how to be a pastor was Pastor Rick. The eight years that I served under Pastor Rick before becoming the senior pastor here were, were crucial to me, were so powerful for me in helping to understand what it is to be an example as a godly leader, leading as a shepherd with a spirit of humility, of selflessness, of agape love and service. Some of you are newer to our church. You, you never had the blessing of living and being under Pastor Rick's leadership. If you've never met him, I'd encourage you to do so. He's sitting right there. <laughs> and we are blessed. Part of the reason God has blessed Lakes Free for so long is because he's blessed us with faithful overseers who are examples to the flock of selflessness, of humility, of service, of love. Pastor Rick led the way, and we've had many other faithful elders here over the years who have modeled that as well. Peter calls us to be examples to the flock. So, so the first part of God's recipe for a healthy church is godly shepherds, but there's a second part to the recipe. 
The second part to the recipe is a healthy church needs humble sheep. Humble sheep. <clears throat> we need godly shepherds and we need humble sheep. Now, now who's included in this, this group of humble sheep? Well, Peter begins and makes very clear it, it starts with the elders. The elders are the first in this group of, of humble sheep. And Peter goes on to remind the elders that they need humility because they serve under the authority of the chief shepherd. Right? Peter adds this insight here. It's very important. In verse 4, he says, Look, don't domineer over those in your charge. Be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why does Peter add this here? He wants the elders, the overseers, to remember, you're not the boss. You are servants of the boss. You have been commissioned to shepherd my people, but they're my people. Right? Remember your place. And so as elders, the first and foremost responsibility that we have to have in leading God's church is to do so in a spirit of humility, recognizing that we serve the chief shepherd. The great missionary Hudson Taylor, one of the most important missionaries in the history of the world, led the missions movement into China, bringing Christianity to China Hudson Taylor was once asked to speak at a large church in Australia. And when he was introduced, the pastor, you know, just, uh, just you know, lavished him with praise as he was introducing Hudson Taylor. And rightfully so. I mean, this guy was a giant in the history of the Christian faith. And so in his introduction, the pastor, you know, was just encouraging his church to let's give him a warm welcome and let's welcome our illustrious guest, Hudson Taylor, you know, and the whole church applauded and clapped. And Hudson Taylor made his way to the podium. And he stood there quietly for a moment. And he opened his message with these words. He says, dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. That's the heart that an elder should have. We are just little servants of an illustrious master. Peter reminds the elders next, he says, they'll be rewarded for their humble obedience to the chief shepherd. He says, look, if you serve this way, if you serve in humility, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Remember, we don't serve for earthly gain. We don't serve for earthly acclaim. We serve for the acclaim of Jesus. And, and when Jesus returns, he is going to re reward those godly and faithful overseers with the unfading crown of glory. They'll be rewarded for what they did on behalf of God. On Thanksgiving Day, our family, one of our family traditions in the morning as grandma and mom are getting the Thanksgiving meal ready, my, my kids and I, we like to watch the National Dog Show. Any of you guys watch the National Dog Show? This year was a historic year in the National Dog Show. It was the first time in history that the same dog has won the coveted category best in show back-to-back -back years. The same dog won two years in a row. First time in history it's ever happened. The dog was a Scottish deerhound named Claire. A Scottish deerhound is one of the tallest breeds of dogs in the world. It's a, it's a beautiful, majestic dog. And Claire won best in show. I was reading about her yesterday. Not only was she admired for her grace and her poise, 
but especially for her ability to respond to her handler's leading. Her ability to respond to her handler's leading. And I thought to myself, what a great illustration for those who would be called to serve as leaders over God's church. Faithful, godly elders are men who have the ability to respond to their master's leading. Let's continue to set that example for our church elders here. Peter goes on, he, he points out to a second group of people. He says we need, we need humble sheep, and so we, the humble sheep include elders, but secondly, the humble sheep include the young people of the church. He says, verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Now, now, the word younger there does specifically refer to young people in the church. To younger people in the church. He says, be subject to your elders. Now, why does he share this word of encouragement with the young people in the church? Well, we've all been young people at one time or another, right? I'm 46 years old. Some of you still consider me a young person, right? But I look at some of these 20-year-olds out here, and I'm thinking, you know what? You guys are young people, right? He tells the young people of the church to be subject to their elders. And remember, that word be subject, that's, that's a bad word in our culture today, right? No, we don't like to talk about being subject or submission. But again, as we talked about very clearly a few weeks ago, all that means is voluntarily placing yourself under the authority of another person. And every single one of us here does that all the time, every day. We voluntarily place ourselves under the authority of another. And Peter says to the young people in the church, be subject, voluntarily place yourself under the authority of your elders. Why? Because these ideally are faithful men, humble men, called by God to lead and serve you for your benefit to help you grow to become more like Jesus. All right, And so young people in particular need to hear this message because they are the future of the church. And one day they are going to be charged with passing on the truth of Christianity to the next generation. And as we all know, when we're young, right, we have the temptation to rebel against our authorities, to, to think we know better, to want to do life our own way. And so oftentimes we go that route and we end up finding ourselves in places we don't want to be. Getting mixed up in things that we shouldn't be getting mixed up in. And it, and it leads to nothing good. And so Peter reminds the young people in the church, look at be subject to your elders. Put yourself under their authority. If they're faithful men of God who have your best interests in mind, who want to see you grow in Christ-likeness, listen to them. Trust them. Follow their guidance. Follow their lead because they've been around the block a few times. And there's much you can learn from their example. And so young people, we should strive to, to follow our elders that way. One of my great heroes growing up as a kid was Roger Staubach, the Hall of Fame quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. Roger Staubach, great, great guy. And, and Roger Staubach, when he came out of college, you know, he was a highly, highly touted, highly recruited college quarterback. And he came to the Dallas Cowboys, and he thought he was going to end up being the man. And he ultimately became the man. He went to four Super Bowls, won two of them. But when he started out with the Cowboys, it was very tough. 
because he butted heads with the Hall of Fame coach of the Dallas Cowboys, Tom Landry. See, Staubach thought he knew it all. He was, he was the you know, college champ quarterback. No, you know, nobody can tell me how I should run my offense right. And Tom Landry insisted on calling all the plays. And Staubach thought he was being slighted. He wanted more freedom. He wanted more control. And the first few years of Staubach's career were a disaster for the Dallas Cowboys because they kept butting heads. Later on in his career, Staubach would reflect back on what changed, what led to the success of the Dallas Cowboys ultimately. And Staubach says this, he says, I finally faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. Young people, be subject to your elders because God has placed faithful men over your charge to lead you, to guide you out of love, in humility, in selflessness so that you can grow to become like Jesus and so that you can ultimately pass on the faith to the next generation. Thirdly, Peter speaks to the last group of sheep in the church. And this is the congregation as a whole. Peter ends our passage. He says, likewise, not only you who are younger, but clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. The word clothe yourselves in the Greek, it literally means to put on like a garment. How much time did you spend getting ready for church this morning? I know for me, last night, I spent about an hour, you know, picking out my clothes, ironing my clothes, figuring out what I was going to wear. I, I like to get ready more at night Saturday so I can spend more time prepping in the morning on Sunday, right? But, but I invested a significant amount of time getting ready to come to church. I mean, I spent at least 15, 20 minutes on my hair this morning, <laughs> Right? But we often put a lot of time in getting ready for church. But how much time do we put in clothing ourselves in humility? Peter says this should be one of our top priorities. Putting on humility. Is that our heart's desire when we come to church on Sunday mornings? On Wednesday nights? At other times in the week? Do, do we pray, God, humble me. Help me to, to put on the clothing of humility. To be a, a faithful member of this community as I come to church. What, what is humility, friends? Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's about putting others before you. It's about loving and serving and giving for the sake of the wider body of Christ. Humility is the oil that keeps a church running smoothly and effectively. The, the humble person says, look, at church isn't about what I get out of this place, but it's about what I can give for the sake of the mission of Christ. That's, that's what it means to be a humble sheep, friends. It's about a, having a heart that's beyond yourself and looks out to the needs of others and how you can serve others and support the mission that God has given us as the church. And Peter ends our passage this morning with this warning and encouragement. He quotes Proverbs 3.34. He says, God opposes the proud, that's the warning, but he gives grace to the humble. Why, why does God oppose the proud? 
Well, I was thinking about this. I came up with at least four reasons. There might be more, but I think these are four pretty good ones. Pride is the antithesis of who God is. 1 John 4, 7, 8 says that God is love. Agape love, selfless love, serving love, giving love, ultimately modeled for us in Jesus, who was God in flesh. And so the spirit of pride is the very opposite of who God is. Pride is also rebellion against our maker. It's saying to God, we know better. How stupid and foolish can you be? Right? To, to be the creation of the maker of the universe and say to God, ah, you know what? Forget this. Forget this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it my way. I know better. But we do that all the time, right? Friends, that's the sin of pride. It's the oldest, pride, it's the oldest sin in the book. And it's rebellion against our creator, the one who has revealed truth to lead and guide and bring us to life and life to the full. Pride destroys our relationships with other people. Instead of thinking of ourself less, we start thinking of ourself more and we start looking at people for what they can do for me and what I can get from them and how I can use them instead of how can I get on my knees like Jesus in loving service and humility to my brothers and sisters? How can I lay down my life for others? And pride is ultimately a betrayal of our gospel calling. Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Friends, how can we teach the world to be like Jesus if we ourselves aren't following the model of Jesus? And so Peter warns us, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The word grace here in the Greek is charis. It means kindness, goodwill, favor, benevolence. And God says he blesses the humble church with his grace. Friends, this is, this is God's recipe for a healthy church. It's not all that complicated. Godly, faithful shepherds, humble sheep, when these two come together in humility and love for God and for one another, that's, that's the secret to a great church. It's one of the secrets that has led to God's blessing here at Lakes Free for over 35 years. And friends, my hope and prayer, my heart's desire is that we would continue to see God mixing this recipe together here amongst us. That God will continue to raise up faithful men, humble men, leading, guiding, serving selflessly out of God's agape love for the church. And that in response, the church would come under their leadership in a spirit of humility. Recognizing that God has placed these overseers above us for our good, for our benefit, to lead us, to guide us, to pull us out of the ditch, no matter how many times we jump back in. And to set us on the path that leads to life and life to the full that Jesus has pointed out to us. Friends, let that be our prayer for this church. In fact, let's pray together right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle Peter and his words of instruction and how you gave him these, this guidance so that we might understand what, what it is to be a healthy church and, and how we can have that kind of a community 
And Lord, we thank you for the ways that you have been faithful in providing that health to our church over the years. But God, this is something we can't take for granted. We need to continually seek you and come to you in humility and, and ask for your grace to continue to bless us, Lord, with, with a, a, a new generation of faithful, godly men to lead and guide this church in love and selflessness and humility. We, we pray the same, Lord, for our women leaders in the church, God, that they too would have that spirit of selflessness, of love, faithfulness, and humility. And that all of us, Lord, as your sheep here, as part of this congregation, would embrace that attitude of selfless humility, Lord, seeking not to get from this church, but seeking to give for the sake of others and for the mission you've called us to. Lord, we acknowledge again today, this is your church. We are your people. God, we ask for your blessing. We ask for your caress, your amazing grace to be present here so that we might be a people that reflect the love of Jesus to the community around us, that model Christ-like love to all who see us, who faithfully live and proclaim the goodness and amazing grace of our great God. Lord, help us in that. We pray this in your, your name, Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. It comes out of the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you, friends, and have a great week. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.